All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14? Now, last week we began a a two-part study that came out of Matthew 14. The um, passage is verse 22 through 33, a message we've entitled, Sent into the Storm. Now, let me just quickly sketch out the background. The Lord and his disciples had come to the end of a long, hard ministry day. It was supposed to be a day of rest, by the way. It started out where they were going to get into a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee and find a deserted place near Bethsaida where they could just kind of get some rest, relaxation, and so on. The crowds, though, saw where they were headed, ran around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and were waiting there when Jesus and his guys arrived. About fifteen to 20,000 people waiting to be ministered to. Well, the Lord's very gracious, obviously, and so he spends the whole day healing the sick, teaching them, and culminates in feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, again, 15 to 20,000 people, with just uh, a little boy sack lunch who offered it to the Lord, uh, consisting of five barley biscuits and a couple small pickled fish. And uh, as we said last week, no matter how insignificant your gifts are or no matter how little you have to offer God, If you offer it willingly, he'll use it. He'll multiply it. Well, we read then in verse 22, immediately after the crowd had been satisfied, they were glutted, by the way, the Greek says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there, But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed, and the Greek is tortured. I mean, it was a fairly sizable storm. It was tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, as we said last week, because we developed the passage and looked at it closely last time, while the guys were out in the Sea of Galilee going through this storm, I mean, this is a real brouhaha, real storm, okay? These were seasoned fishermen. Uh, and they had been in storms before. This had them shook, all right? This was some kind of storm. And while they were battling for their lives on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was up on the mountain. John says it was Passover time. Uh, That was important because at Passover time, it was always the full moon. Uh, The Jews were on lunar calendar, and Passover always came at the time of the full moon, which meant there was moonlight out, a lot of moonlight. And Mark tells us from where he was sitting... Uh, on the mountain, he could see them on the Sea of Galilee struggling in the storm in the moonlight. Now, remember, this was a windstorm, uh, not a rainstorm with clouds. It was a windstorm. The uh, cold uh, air from Mount Hermon, which is about 9,000 feet above sea level, often races down into the Galilee Basin, collides with the warm air over the Sea of Galilee, and these storms, these windstorms, come out of nowhere. And they can be pretty violent, as we see in this story. Now, he's up in the mountain. And what's he doing up there? Well, Matthew tells us he was praying, no doubt praying for them. So as we kind of sketched this out last time, here we see the disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee fighting for their lives while Jesus is up in the mountain watching the whole thing unfold. Now, some would look at that and go, that's kind of cruel. Okay, was he just enjoying their uh, pain? Was he just, you know, uh, was it bringing him amusement to see them struggling like that on the Sea of Galilee? Well, If you're thinking along those lines, let me throw this into the mix. Okay, Did Jesus know the storm was coming when he sent these guys out into the Sea of Galilee? Yes, absolutely. 
which now forces us to grapple with the question, why would God send his kids into a storm? Why would God, If this was all a part of God's plan, and I believe it was, well, then it begs the question, why does God send his kids into storms? Because these disciples were not unique. They're just a little microcosm, just a little object lesson for the rest of us, how that God will work this way in all of our lives. God will send his kids, his disciples, his followers out into storms. Now, let me just, before I say why, we look at the reasons why he will do that, let me just define a storm. For them, it was literal. And God can use literal storms in our lives as he did with them. But allegorically, a storm would be any trial or tribulation, problem or painful circumstance that we find ourselves battling in life. And guys, by the way, these storms often hit suddenly and without warning. They come out of nowhere many times. Things are going along great. We're sailing along smooth sailing and blue skies. And suddenly here comes a storm and it just catches us off guard. We're not even ready for it. Sometimes these storms in our lives are the result of another person's disobedience toward God that winds up sweeping us into the storm that God has brought upon their lives. As we're going to see in a moment, this happened to the crew and passengers of the ship Jonah the prophet happened to be on. He was running from God. God was dealing with him through a storm, but because he was on the boat with other people, they also went through the storm directed at him. Same thing is true at Noah and his family, right? They found themselves in a pretty big storm. We call it the flood, right? Uh, and the, the, the storm was raging, the, the water and so on, and they were tossed to and fro inside the ark. They were being subjected to a storm not because of their wickedness or their disobedience. It was because of everybody else that they found themselves going. God was judging the world, not knowing his family. He was sparing them, but they were caught up in the storm directed in judgment at the others. Sometimes in our lives, we will go through storms that God directed other people because we're connected to them. If you're a wife, we'll say, and you are married to an unbelieving husband, and he's acting like an unbeliever and making bad decisions and bringing all kinds of adversity and trials and pain into your life. Maybe he's an alcoholic. Because you're connected to him in marriage, you're going to go through the storms God puts him through to break him. Same is true if you have a rebellious teenager. Some of you folks have had rebellious teenagers, got involved in drugs, gave you a lot of heartache. You know, God brought one thing after another into this kid's life to break them, and hopefully he has. But boy, for a while there, it was rough seas, wasn't it? It's a tough time. As you are swept up into the storm, God is bringing into their life to do the work he wants to accomplish. I think most of the time, storms come upon our lives because of our own rebellion. Our own rebellion, but not always. Not always. I don't want you to think that if you're going through a trial right now, it's because you're not right with God. That's not true, necessarily, as we're going to see in a moment. I think many times, these storms are nobody's fault, but simply the sovereignty of God at work in our lives, wanting to accomplish his purposes. Now, what could those purposes be? Well, as we read our Bibles, as, you know, as I've read my Bible over the years, I see at least four major reasons why God will send us into storms. Four things that will accomplish his purposes. They are storms of correction, storms of perfection, storms of direction, and then storms of preparation. And we'll look at these. First of all, 
he sends us into the storm to give us necessary correction. Turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and crowd against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down, listen, down to Joppa, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his own God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. It's amazing how far down we can go when we're trying to run from God. Notice that he went down to Tarshish. He went down here. He went down into the belly. He kept going down, down, down. But God told Jonah, a prophet, to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to tell the Ninevites, because of their wickedness, they were 40 days from judgment if they didn't repent. So what did Jonah do? He hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians. They were a brutal people. And he wanted them to get blasted by God. He wanted them to get judged. So God says, go over there and tell those folks to repent. I'm not going there. Jonah runs the other way. Trying to escape the presence of the Lord. As if you can do that. His presence fills the universe. David said, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I descend into the lowest parts of the earth, you're there. Everywhere I go, Lord, you're there. I can't run from you. You can't run from God. You can run, but you can't hide. Right? I think somebody said that. So what did God do? Jonah tries to run from God, disobeying what God had told him to do. And so God sends a storm to chasten and correct him for his disobedience. And you remember the story. Eventually, the ship, the, the, the crew got so freaked out that they felt they were goners and Jonah said, look, it's me. I'm not doing what God wants. Throw me overboard and you'll be, the storm will stop for you guys. And they finally did. And a big fish came and swallowed Jonah, took him on the first submarine ride to the shores where he was regurgitated up onto the shore, went to Nineveh and had a quite a fruitful ministry, no doubt, because of the way he looked after being three days and three nights in that fish's belly. But uh, that's another story. But, but here's the point I'm making. Sometimes, if we continually refuse to do what God has told us to do in his word, you know, he's gentle at first. He's patient. He tries to reason with us. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Now, you know you're not doing right. What are you doing? You know you're not doing right. Come on, I love you. I don't want to see you go that way. First of all, I can't bless you. Secondly, you're going to bring consequences upon your life. I don't want you to have to deal with. Come on, get it right with me. Let's get back into fellowship. But we can be very hard-hearted like Jonah, and we can keep running from God. So after God tries to reason us for a while, then he starts to ratchet up things. And God's good at this. Okay, Woe unto that person who strives with his maker. You don't want to wrestle with God. You don't want to fight against the Lord. You're going to be a loser. Okay, And so God at one point then says, all right, we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. You don't want to do it the easy way? All right, I'm going to bring a storm into your life, whatever that form it may take, uh, but these storms are designed to, to force us to change course and to start moving in a direction of obedience toward God. 
And again, it could take any form. I mean, you can fill in the blanks. It could be uh, the storm could mean you could lose a job. You could lose a relationship. You could even lose your health, we'll say. All these things are designed to get your attention, to correct you in the way you're, from the way you're going into the right path. God brings storms of correction because he loves us and wants to bless us and lead us in the right paths. He can't do that if we're being rebellious. Let me give you just a couple of scriptures. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, where the writer says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, this is God talking now, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, listen, he chastens. This is discipline, loving discipline. And scourges every son whom he receives. That's because God loves us too much to watch us just walk away from him, from his will, and from his best for our lives, to get off into things that he knows we're going to just wind up destroying us. So he chastens us. He brings the storms. Now, a mature child of God, and sometimes we mature Christians can walk away too. We're not perfect. But if you handle God's chastening properly, you're going to be like David who said in Psalm 119, he said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Thank you, God. You love me enough to take me to the woodshed and straighten me out. He said, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Don't stop, Lord, because I don't want to, I want to know you. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. That's the heart of a person who says, you know what? I did something stupid and God chastened me, got my attention, and I thank him that he loved me that much where he just won't let me go my way. He will intervene He will try to reason with me, and then if that doesn't work, he'll bring out the heavier artillery. But but he'll get my attention. Look, let me just say this. If you find yourself going through a protracted period where everything seems to be going wrong, nothing is working out for you, and there seems to be one problem after another, let me encourage you to do something very important. Take inventory of your life. And let me just say this. Oftentimes, it's not like we don't know what the problem is. When I say take inventory of your life, very seldom will that take a long time because you and I know when we're doing wrong. All right, Jonah knew what he was doing. God didn't have to say, now Jonah, what do you think is going on here? Well, let me think for a minute. No, Jonah knew what he was doing wrong. We know when we're not obeying God. But if you're going through a protracted period of one problem after another, ask yourself, all right, what's going on? Am I living rightly with God? Is he trying to correct me? And if you come to that conclusion, get on your knees and make it right. Make it right. So first of all, he sends us into the storm to give us necessary correction. Secondly, he sends us into the storm to further our perfection. For this, I want you to turn to James chapter 1. You all know these verses, James 1, verses 2 to 4. Where James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various Trials. Can I paraphrase and say storms? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. That you may be perfect. Talking about your faith now. Perfect and complete. Lacking nothing. Now, guys, this, as we studied last week, was the kind of storm the disciples found themselves in on the Sea of Galilee. It was designed 
to perfect their faith. You see, Jesus had sent them out onto the Sea of Galilee, telling them, cross over the Sea of Galilee. He goes up onto the mountain. He's watching the whole thing. They get about halfway across, and this storm comes out of nowhere. And suddenly now they are just locked in this fierce storm. Again, these were seasoned fishermen. They had been through storms. This was something different. It was something that I I imagine they had never seen before. And they were really panicked. And so it says about the, it says in the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Now, by this time, they have been struggling on that sea for six, seven, maybe eight hours. Can you imagine that? Fighting for your life for like eight hours? I'm sure they were physically exhausted, probably seasick, and they have probably lost all hope of ever getting through this thing alive. And I'm sure they were thinking to themselves as they're rowing and bailing and everything else, where's Jesus when you need him? You ever been there? Well, he was with them in spirit. He was up on the mountain. He was watching the whole thing. He was praying. Nothing was out of his control. He was testing them because he told them to cross over. They were his disciples. They were going to be taking over the ministry once he left to go back to his father. You think he's going to let him, let him die there on the Sea of Galilee? Do you think God's going to let you die before he's done with you and me? Absolutely not. He was testing their faith. They should have come to a point when all hope was gone, that was good, all hope in themselves. They should have said, well, we've come to the end of our resources, our strength. He told us to cross over. We're not going to go under. Lord, where are you? You're going to show up any time, I'm sure. When he did show up, though, they thought he was a ghost because they weren't looking for him. Oftentimes, we get so consumed by the storm, we get our eyes off of the Lord, we forget who he is, we lose heart, and we don't look for him to come and rescue us at the 11th hour as we know he often will do. In the fourth watch of the night, here he comes walking to them on the water. This whole thing was designed to build their faith. He had told them to cross over. They were worried about going under. If the Lord tells you to cross over, you're not going under. And if you're about to go under, well, then you just need to look and, well, Lord, where are you? Because I know you're coming to rescue me. Because you're not going to let me, you told me to go over. Or you told me to do this. You gave me this direction or this, this task to do. And now I find myself in this terrible trial. But Lord, I know you're in this, so you're going to have to work it out. So you've got to be looking for the Lord at those times. Those can be exciting times when your back is against the wall. Now for them, they weren't thinking spiritually. They were thinking carnally. So when he finally walks to them out in the water there, what do they think he was? A ghost. Tremendous men of faith. And so here he comes walking on the water. They thought he was a ghost. He said, don't be afraid. It is I. The Greek, he said, I am. That was the name of God. And God told Moses to go to Pharaoh in Exodus 3 to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. Moses said, Lord, he's not going to listen to me. I don't even know your name. Who who should I tell him is sending me? God said, you tell him I am is sending you. It's the name of God. So here comes Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples were terrified. thought he was a ghost. He said, look, it's me. I am. Remember me, the great I am, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who told you to go over. What are you afraid for going under? I'm here. All right. I've been watching the whole thing. I haven't abandoned you. Of course, you can read the story we studied last week. Peter said, if it's really you, let me come walking to you on the water. And he did for a while until he got his eyes off the Lord. He began to sink and the Lord rescued him and began to use it to teach Peter 
some lessons in faith for next time. But as soon as Peter and Jesus got back into the boat, immediately he was at the shore. And they got out of the boat and they said, you are truly the Son of God. And they worshipped him. See, these storms are designed to build our awareness of his greatness, his power. Because as they do, our worship is deepened, our faith is strengthened. And we need faith if we're going to serve him in the future. Now, these storms of perfection, again, are conducted under the control and watchful eye of God all the time. You can be sure of one thing. Nothing happens to you and me as Christians, but what God doesn't allow for his purposes. And these storms, by the way, they have a beginning and they have an end. They have a purpose. God won't let us go through storms forever, unless, of course, you're walking in disobedience. But it reminds me of what Peter said, 1 Peter 5.10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So Peter says, you know, God will put you through the storms for a while. But they don't come and rescue you. Sit you down and go, okay, now what have you learned about me through the storm? What have you learned? Has your faith been strengthened? What have you learned about yourself and your inability to trust me in the midst of a storm? Are you going to learn lessons for the next time? Because I want to use you, but I need you to grow in your faith. So, again, first of all, he sends us into the storm to give us necessary correction. He sends us into the storm to further our perfection. Number three, he sends us into the storm to give us new direction. Sometimes that takes the form of directing a person into salvation. Directing a person into salvation. Turn to Psalm 107. And let's pick it up in verse 23. The psalmist said, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. Understand, God is behind the storms, and he uses them for his purpose. Verse 26, they mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. These are the sailors now in these storms on, on the, in the sea. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men and are at their wit's end. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. So the psalmist is saying God will use storms at sea to break sailors, to bring them to him. In fact, it reminds me of how God used the storm at sea to direct John Newton to him. Listen to what one biographer said about John Newton. He said, John Newton was one of the biggest sinners and reprobates that ever walked on the face of the earth. He was an experienced sailor and navigator, but his cursing and blaspheming turned even the hardest sailor's ears red. He had one thing in his favor, a godly mother who told him about the Savior when he was young and continued to pray for him all throughout his years of sin and rebellion against God. One day John signed on with a slave ship leaving from Africa with a load of human cargo. He ridiculed the moral and poked fun at the religious. He even made jokes about a book that would eventually help reshape his life, The Imitation of Christ, written by Thomas Akempis. In fact, he was degrading that book a few hours before his ship sailed into an angry storm. That night, the waves pummeled the greyhound, spinning the ship one minute on the top of the wave, plunging her the next into a watery valley. John awakened to find his cabin filled with water. The side of the greyhound had collapsed. Ordinarily, such damage would have sent his ship 
to the bottom of the sea in a matter of minutes. The greyhound, however, was carrying buoyant cargo and remained afloat. John worked at the pumps all night. For nine hours, he and the other sailors struggled to keep the ship from sinking, but he knew it was a losing battle. The constant wind rocked the boat so forcefully that the sailors had to tie themselves to the deck to keep from being swept overboard. At one point, several of the crew tried to throw Newton overboard. They figured that God was punishing him like Jonah in the Old Testament. That was really bad news. Finally, when his hopes were more battered than the vessel, he threw himself on the salt, water-soaked deck and prayed earnestly. Isn't it something? What God has to go through at times to bring us to the end of ourselves. And so Newton threw himself on the deck in the midst of the storm and cried, God, if you're true, make good your word. Cleanse my vile heart and have mercy on us all. John didn't deserve mercy, but he received it. The Greyhound and her crew survived. After four weeks of storms and constant brushes with death, the ship limped into an Irish port. John Newton, former free thinker, former slave trader and atheist, declared his faith in Jesus. He became a well-known preacher and composer. In fact, we chiefly know him as the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, which goes in part, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. God loves you too much to sit idly by while you go to hell. He will do everything in his power to get your attention and to break you of your rebellion. And if God has to inflict pain right now, which only lasts for a short while compared to eternity, if God has to inflict pain in your life now to spare you from the agony of pain in hell forever, he'll do that. And there's a lot of folks, especially today, who feel I'm the captain of my ship, I'm the master of my fate, you know? Nobody's going to tell me what to do with my life. And God has to put them through oftentimes horrific storms, sometimes life and death situations, whereby he allows them to go through such fearful and painful circumstances that they are broken of their rebellion and cry out to God to save them, like John Newton did. However, even Christians can go through these storms of direction or redirection. I think of Paul, who was on his way to Rome. Remember now, he had to stand before Caesar. He was accused of some, brought up in some false charges. And so, along with 276 or seven other passengers, they boarded a ship headed for Rome. And not long after they had set sail, they came... They, they sailed right into a vicious nor'easter called Eurachlodon. It's a hurricane. For two weeks, this ship was just tossed, driven. They couldn't even, they, they dropped the sails, threw out the cargo, uh, threw out the tackle, and, and just prayed. For two weeks, they were tossed in this storm. And to make a long story short, you can read about the whole experience in Acts 27 and 8. But finally, the ship is run aground on the island of Malta where they were not headed, but now they were there. And for the next three or four months, they stayed there. Paul preached the gospel. They had the winter there. Paul preached the gospel. Many folks got saved. The church was started. This was a storm of direction, where God used the storm to direct the apostle Paul into a new area of ministry. God will do that. 
In fact, I heard a story, true story of a Christian man who owned a company, very successful company, made a six-figure income from his business. But one day, for no apparent reason, business, he said, steadily began to decline. And over the next few months, it declined so much that the company went broke and he had to close it down. Well, he's a Christian. It's heartbroken. God, why didn't you answer my prayers? Lord, I'm your child. I'm crying out to you and you let my business just fold? Now, he could have become bitter and turned away from God, but he didn't to his credit. He drew close to God in his heartbreak and God redirected him into the mission field. And out of his own mouth, he said, you know, there was a time when I had lots of money, but it didn't make me happy. He said, now I don't have any money, but I have never been happier serving the Lord. Sometimes God will use these kinds of trials in your life not to break you or crush you or show you he doesn't care about you, but to redirect you in some area. If you're going through a long period where just it seems like you're in a storm, a constant adversity or whatever, be open to God redirecting you into some new venture for him. Be open to that. Oftentimes that's what he's doing. And I'll give you one more. Again, he sends us into the storm to give us necessary correction, perfection, new direction. Number four, he sends us into the storm for the purpose of preparation. God's storms are preparatory oftentimes. They prepare us for the work that God has for us in the future. We have to understand this now. Oftentimes, we look at a storm just based on what I've got going on at that moment. Not realizing that God is often working today for the future preparing us. Here in Matthew 14, Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children, and then he sent the disciples into the storm. A few months later, Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 4 to 5,000 men plus women and children, feeding them spiritually, and then another storm hits. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, comes down on these guys and threatens them if they ever preach any more in the name of Christ, they're going to be in serious trouble. Now, I believe the storm in Matthew 14, which was literal, prepared them for the storm in Acts 4, which was figurative, but still very real. How is that? That storm in the Sea of Galilee taught them perseverance. It taught them to trust in their God. It taught them that when God starts, he's going to finish. He began to work in us. He's not going to let us die in the Sea of Galilee before he uses us to complete the work he's called us to do. Same thing in Acts 4. They didn't give up because they had learned to persevere. They had learned to trust God. And they learned that if Jesus sent them out to preach the good news in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, you know what? Man is not going to stop that. Or at least we're not going to let him stop that. We're going to trust God. We're going to keep moving forward. So that storm in Matthew 14 prepared them for what was coming later on. And so often the pain of today is preparing us for the work of tomorrow. The pain of today is preparing us for the work of tomorrow. Very important that we understand that. Turn to John 16. Now before we read John 16, I want to just tell you that John 16 was the culmination of the last evening Jesus would spend with his disciples before the cross. It didn't really end in chapter 16, but um, his um, discourse to them ended there in chapter 16. But the evening had opened up in chapter 13. 
where Jesus said to them, I shall be with you just a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. All right. Fast forward. Now he returns to that theme at the end of the evening. He said in verse 20 of John 16, Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Well, he's talking about in a little while I'm going to the cross. You're not going to see me anymore, not for three days. But then on the third day, I'm going to present myself alive. And your sorrow is going to be turned into great joy. Now, let me read you something based on that scripture that I came across. And I thought, you know, I really need to share this. Because this author nails something that most of us don't even really, I don't think, think about. How God works oftentimes. Let me read it to you. All right? And again, it's based on what we just read in John's Gospel. The author says, and I quote, The principle is simply this. God brings joy to our lives, not by substitution, but by transformation. His illustration of the woman giving birth makes this clear. The same baby that caused the pain also caused the joy. In birth, God does not substitute something else to relieve the mother's pain. Instead, he uses what is already there, but transforms it. Every parent knows what it is like to have an unhappy child because a toy is broken or a playmate has gone home. The parent can do one of two things, substitute something else for the broken toy or absent friend or transform the situation into a new experience for the unhappy child. If mother always gets a new toy for the child each time a toy is broken, that child will grow up expecting every problem to be solved by substitution. If mother always phones another playmate and invites him or her over, the child will grow up expecting people to come to his rescue whenever there is a crisis. The result, either way, is a spoiled child who is not able to cope with reality. There's a lot of spoiled Christians who act like immature little babies when they can't get their way. When things don't work out the way they want, they want to kick and scream, and God, you need to substitute. Give me something else. The author says, The way of substitution for solving problems is the way of immaturity. The way of transformation is the way of faith and maturity. We cannot mature emotionally or spiritually if somebody is always replacing our broken toys. Jesus did not say that the mother's sorrow or pain was replaced by joy, but that the sorrow was transformed into joy. The same baby that caused the pain also caused the joy. And so it is in the Christian life. God takes seemingly impossible situations, adds the miracle of his grace, and transforms trial into triumph and sorrow into joy. Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave, and Potiphar put him in prison as a criminal. But God transformed that hopeless situation of defeat into victory. What Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God used for good. The same situation that brought such sorrow into Joseph's life was the very thing God used to bring great joy. Sure, as he then interpreted a couple of dreams, Pharaoh got wind of it. Pharaoh calls him in. He interprets a couple of dreams for Pharaoh and becomes prime minister. The author says, King Saul's murderous pursuit of David only made David more of a man of God and helped produce the Psalms that encourage our hearts today. 
Even Jesus took the cross, a symbol of defeat and shame, and transformed it into a symbol of victory and glory. Listen. The Lord knows what tomorrow is going to bring. That's why he says, as difficult as this might seem, it's absolutely necessary that I put you through the storm today to prepare and perfect you for the work that is coming tomorrow. End quote. Let me give you a scripture that succinctly sums that up. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 5, where Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, listen, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, let me paraphrase, so our ability to counsel others abounds through Christ. Translation or paraphrase, God will allow you to go through storms, difficult times. And as you do and you cry out to him, and he eventually rescues you or actually uses that, what he does is he doesn't really rescue us. He comforts us in those afflictions, teaches us about his faithfulness, and then turns around and sends us out to minister to others who are going through similar circumstances. So he turns our pain into the joy of ministry as we then are able to minister to others who are going through similar trials with the same comfort God gave to us. Now, let me just say this. That's only going to help you. That thought is only going to comfort you if you're mature enough to handle it. Because, again, there's a lot of Christians who, when they hear something like that, that doesn't bless them at all. Because it's not about anybody else. It's about me. I don't want to, no, I don't want to go through this because I'm going to be helping somebody else down the road. I want God to help me and bless me. See, if you're immature, you're carnal, you're into substitution, you know, God, you, my toy got broken, God, give me a new one, you know. If, if, if a Christian is immature, childish, carnal, they're not going to be looking to allow the trial to teach them that they can be better equipped to help others who are going through similar things. Let me um, close this morning with a true story, you know. All the stories I tell are true, but I, I want to just say that, okay? <laughs> so something we have to say, all right? This is a true story. It's about uh, a young lady named Erica Fye. Now, my wife, Cindy, knows the family, knows Erica's mom, has met Erica. We as a family have supported Erica in her mission for God. But Erica, this is going back now, uh, maybe eight to ten years. At the time, Erica was only maybe 17, 18 years old. And she was an on-fire Christian. That's a very important point to the story. She was walking closely with God. Her family was a ministry family. They were all walking with God, uh, the mother and father, I should say. But Erica was walking closely with God. Now, she lived in the Bronx, tough neighborhood. And one day, coming home from school or the store or something, she was jumped upon by a group of gangbangers who gang-raped her. Erica could have been furious with God. She could have turned her back on God and said, why didn't you protect me? Why didn't you spare me? I'm your child. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I can't trust you and so on and so forth. Erica didn't come off that way, though. 
That's not the road she took. Again, very strong Christian young lady. She gave it to God. She forgave the young men who had raped her. And she moved forward. Interestingly, God completely emotionally healed her. She didn't have to spend years in psychotherapy, which you would think would be normal after you're going through something like that. No, God just completely, you know, he he healed her of the experience. She handled it with such grace and love, forgiveness, and dignity that her older sister, who was into witchcraft, got saved. Then God opened the door for Erica to get hooked up with a ministry that we support, far-reaching ministry, who they minister in Africa. God sent her over to Africa, where she got hooked up with a tribe out there. Now, here's a little side note to this story. To be able to come and go into this tribe, you had to be initiated into the tribe. There were three people there that day that wanted to be initiated into the tribe so they could minister. And what they had to do is they each had to drink a bowl of animal blood mixed with urine and maggots and some other things because the folks figured in this tribe, if you're willing to do that and you can you can hold it down, well, you're worthy then of being a part of our tribe. The other two folks absolutely could not hold that down. Erica prayed, Lord, I believe you want me here to minister to these folks. You have to give me grace. And by God's grace, she was able to down that incredible mixture. And you know what God did? After the door was open for her to minister to the tribe, she ministered to the ladies. These ladies are routinely gang raped. Routinely gang raped. And because Erica had gone through that experience, she had an open door to their hearts and was able to minister to them. You know, as I was going over my notes this morning, I didn't have that story in my notes. And right before I had finished going over my notes for the last time, the Lord laid that story in Erica on my heart. And so I scribbled into my notes at the bottom, Erica Fye's story. You know, sometimes you don't know if God really wants you to share some things, but you think he does. I really felt he did, but, you know, it wasn't the voice from heaven that says share that story. So I come to church, and on my chair is a envelope. It's from a missions organization in Africa. I open it up, and there's Erica. It's her newsletter. You know what the name of it is? Erica Phi. <laughs> Clay in God's hands. That's what these storms are. There are times of preparation where God is molding us to use us. Listen to me. An unbeliever or a carnal Christian would hear that God would allow somebody to be gang raped for them then use them in ministry. They would be offended in the extreme. But wasn't Jesus the righteous, abused, beaten, tortured, crucified for us? Aren't we his servants? Aren't we his followers? What makes us think in an evil world and God wants to reach people that he won't let us go through some pretty horrific things, that we are better equipped to reach others for the Lord? So understand me. Storms are not easy. They're not fun, but they are always necessary. Erica's storm, well, that wasn't a storm of correction. She didn't do anything wrong. But it was a storm of perfection, Direction and preparation. So 
three came into play in what she went through. As God redirected her life, prepared her life, used her life, perfecting her faith, and so on. What I'm saying is, again, to quote the old Arab proverb, all sunshine makes a desert. We need storms because they mold us into the people God wants us to be. So may God give us grace to be mature enough that when the storms come, we don't fall and feel in a heap and feel sorry for ourselves. We say, Lord, wow, it's a pretty tough storm. What are you trying to teach me? What are you preparing me for? I'm your servant. And Lord, whatever you have to put me through to prepare me for the work you have for me down the road, I welcome it. By God's grace, may he give us that kind of heart. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We know, Lord, that everything you do is done out of love for us. And Lord, you do send us into the storm, but not because you get pleasure out of seeing us suffer, but you get joy out of seeing us become the people you want us to be and used by you for your glory. Lord, we pray for Erica that you'll continue to use her in Africa. And we pray, Lord, that you will give us grace to accept our storms and to grow through them. That when you finally direct us to where you want us to be, we are prepared, equipped, and joyfully undertake the ministry you've called us to. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.